The Ornstein and Chapman podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite betting company. Did you know you can create personalised bets? So if you fancy Man City to beat West Ham this weekend and Aguero to get on the score sheet, Bet365's Bet Builder lets you create personalised bets and calculate the odds for any football match right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. We'll bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across The Athletic. Coming up today, we'll give detail on some of the major moves from the transfer window, how Manchester United ended up with a gala rather than King. Uh, we'll look at some of the issues that seem to be building up at Crystal Palace and we'll hear the changes that Mikel Arteta is making at Arsenal to unite the squad. How was the, the final week of the window for you, David? Was it chaotic or was it quiet? Well, I think you asked me this question in the build-up to the final week and I said it was a mixed bag <laughs> for me. It was certainly busy um, and we knew a lot was going to get done. Probably even more was not going to get done. And what was for certain is that there was an unbelievable amount of work going on behind the scenes. And so that gave us enough stuff to go at and try and get to the bottom of and report as accurately as we could. So it made it quite exciting. It made it extremely hectic. And I think you know, January's a, a fairly underwhelming month compared to the summer transfer window, uh, but I think there were some pretty good storylines in the end and a lot for us to get our teeth into. Did it feel more desperate than a than a, a usual January transfer window? Maybe time has just uh, erased some previous January transfer windows from my memory, but was there an air of desperation? Well, there's always an air of desperation in January. You only need to think back to 2011 with Fernando Torres moving from Liverpool to Chelsea on deadline day and Andy Carroll going from Newcastle to Liverpool to replace him. So that's nothing new. Um, we've seen some dramatic January windows that don't reflect particularly well on the planning of clubs and I think this is in keeping with that you know Manchester United scrambling around for a striker and flicking through the phone book of pretty much every forward in world football by the way it looked um, is not what United want to be doing it's not really what any club wants to be doing there are other clubs who had things much more settled, the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City. But a lot that was done on deadline day and in deadline week that asks questions of how some of the top clubs in this country are set up. Let's focus on London with the Athletic senior football writer Dominic Fifield because uh, Dom has a, has a has a focus on the uh, on the London clubs. We're going to particularly focus on Crystal Palace in a minute. But but actually, Dom, you know, Arsenal were involved on the final day. Tottenham were involved in the final couple of days. There was a tug of war between Palace and West Ham. There was Chelsea who fought to have their transfer ban lifted and then didn't do anything with it lifted. So there were stories for a lot of the London clubs. Absolutely right. Chelsea's an interesting point. There's a club that, that had their lawyers out to get the to get the uh, the ban, the two-window ban reduced. They succeeded with that at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And then, as it transpires, don't actually buy anybody in um, in the January window and in fact lose a couple of 
kids as well from the under 23s and and and, and which you potentially say is is damaging for the future it's a, i think it just reflects how difficult it is to do business this this month and i think chelsea and spurs to a certain extent were confronted in those last week with do we get a short term striker in do we target someone like in the Galo? chelsea were linked with mertens and cavani people like that or do we maintain our sort of long-term vision as to where this club should be uh, and and do the majority of our transfer business, or in fact all of it, in Chelsea's case, in the summer? And I, I think there's a, I think looking at it, you know, in the cold light of day now in February, uh, there's a logic to, to that as long as they finish in the top four, as long as they secure that Champions League football and remain an appealing club for players to join come, come the summer, then then they'll probably be proved right because a lot of those loan deals are expensive still given the wages, given the fees that some people are, are charging, given you're taking over players' contracts potentially in the last six months of their previous deals. It's a difficult, difficult window to do successful business. We talk about how difficult it is and you've mentioned it and obviously David has mentioned it. What's quite interesting if you if you look at Palace who we're going to focus on and we'll just deal on... on uh, Jared Bowen and how he was caught between Palace and West Ham but a feeling from Palace maybe that their interest was used if that's not too strong a word to flush out the interest of other Premier League clubs yeah I'd go with that I think it's my understanding that, that Hull City actually went to Palace and, and offered Jared Bowen on a loan deal with a view to a permanent um, and when they were sort of re- received enthusiastically on that front, because let's be honest, that was actually quite a good deal for one of the most impressive forward talents in the championship. Um, that that merely served to drum up the auction that Hull City wanted all all along. Um, he ends up at West Ham in a in a deal that that Palace would never consider to doing. Um, Roy Hodgson spoke about that after the game on Saturday. Um, that they had no great desire to, to to buy the player outright in January, and particularly not for the numbers that he actually ended up signing for for West Ham on. And personal terms as well would have been a major problem at Sellers Park. So that happens, though. I mean, that it's a game of politics as well. I mean, agents are, and clubs are, are, are drumming up markets in a in a desperate market as well. Palace were definitely used on Jared Bowen, and Hull City ended up with a deal that is far more appealing to them. On Bowen, my understanding is that on Monday night of deadline week, the player's agent contacted Palace to say he thought there would be a chance that Hull City might let him go on loan, I think with 18 months left on his contract. So Palace had actually talked about him quite a lot, like they do with a lot of players. I don't think they were blown away by Bowen. I think they thought he was okay and and a possible loan appeal to fulfil Hodgson's desire of bringing in another centre-forward. And so there were discussions between the two clubs and and a proposal was thrashed out pretty quickly. Um, My understanding was it was a loan with an option to buy at £25 million, which would become an obligation at £20 million if he scored a certain number of goals and Palace stayed in the Premier League. So... It would have been advantageous to Palace had it developed, but there's a good chance, as you say, they were just being used to create a, a more um, appealing situation for Hull to sell permanently, uh, and that's what ended up happening with West Ham. So before we come on to the, the, the wider situation with Crystal Palace, just just one more on this, because Crystal Palace fans would, would probably be asking the same questions here. Bearing the money that the club brought in in the summer for just the Aaron Wan-Bissaka deal... If Bowen was available at 20 million 
a younger player, bearing in mind they've got a, a fairly old squad, why would they not? I mean, if they don't fancy the player, then fair enough. But if he comes in on loan, does does what is needed to trigger the twenty million? Is that and they stay up? Is why would they not consider that? I, th- I think you've answered your own question there. Um, I, I'm not sure they were convinced of the player's pedigree as yet. Um, right. I mean, buying from the championship in the it, as a Premier League club is a risky business. Uh, there was a, a lot of people at around Palace, as in the supporters, were disappointed that Palace didn't go in for Che Adams last summer. Uh, I think it was £15 million he ended up costing. Che Adams hasn't scored a goal for Southampton as yet. So, it, you know, that and that was a hefty fee, really, for, for a player that hasn't as yet fulfilled his, his potential or promise in the at the higher level. And I, I think there's just an element of risk with all of it. And, you know, the idea of taking somebody in on loan first so you can actually see how they adjust to life at the higher level, there's a logic to that. And it would have been an appealing deal if if they if that would have been fulfilled by by Hull City, as it was though West Ham were willing to take the plunge and Palace weren't. And we don't know if this was um, Palace's fault. It doesn't sound to me like it was because if a permanent deal ultimately appealed more to Hull City, then they're going to favour that. And also, if Bowen's personal terms um, were not appealing to Palace, as Dom sort of touched upon then despite some sort of agreement for a loan with an obligation or option to buy or whatever it doesn't mean that they're the only party at the table and I think Palace probably conducted this in the right way the only problem is they didn't end up filling a position that they aim to. So Dom you you know Crystal Palace very very well and therefore you will know the thinking of Crystal Palace fans who are probably frustrated with the last couple of transfer windows and the fact that this transfer window, it's only Chenk Tosson who's come in on loan from Everton. And yet at the same time, how do you balance that with the feeling within inside the club's hierarchy that, as you've written on The Athletic this week, that um, they've been a little bit unlucky? Yeah, look, I, th- I think you can go back to the summer. That, that's where the real problems stem from. I don't think they... They did enough business in the summer. Certainly, given that they come the summer, they had they they had a, a strategy in place. They realised that they had an, an ageing squad. Um, I mean, the, the team they put out on Saturday against Sheffield United, and the average age of the player, every player was thirty years and ninety four days. They was the oldest that Palace have put out in the top flight. Um, so that there's a recognition that they need to rejuvenate and and bring in younger talents of potential, while also raising the general standard of the squad and that's a difficult thing to achieve at the best of times but particularly in January. Now they actually did make progress towards achieving that. They had, you can go to three players, Nathan Ferguson being one of them from West Bromwich Albion, he's 19, a player of massive potential, Um, Christian Kuame at Genoa, um, 22 year old Ivory Coast forward, and Eight Nuri, I think at Angers, uh, who they they've been tracked and they they tracked for a long time and they and they like what they've seen. Now all three of those players have are injured. Um, Ferguson we'll discuss in a minute, I no doubt. Um, but he's arrived. He arrived for his medical with with a knee problem. 
Kuame suffered a very serious ACL injury playing for Ivory Coast under-23s at the under-23s Nations Cup in uh, November. Um, although he actually weirdly did join Fiorentina on deadline day. Fiorentina have just taken a massive risk on that and they've done it for a fee that's €7 million Euros less than what Palace had negotiated with Genoa originally. And Nate Nuri fractured his jaw in two places playing for Angers against Nice in mid-January and is out for months. So if, the, if Palace had brought in those three players, two of them teenagers and one a 22-year-old striker, then I think we'd be sitting here saying they are trying to rejuvenate it. They've actually spent a fair tranche of the uh, Wan-Bissaka money very, very sensibly um, and things are moving forward and progressing. The fact they didn't get any of those deals over the line in January leaves them open to criticism. Um, we'll have to see what happens in terms of the two fullbacks come the summer. Um, and and the elephant in the room is the managerial situation. In that you've got Roy Hodgson into the last five months now of his contract. Uh, we've had you know, talks have been mooted all season. Roy Hodgson's spoken about his his eagerness to stay and how that he's meeting the chairman. You know, the chairman has been glowing in in terms of Roy Hodgson and what he's achieved at Palace. This is the second best totes, uh, points total they've had at this stage of a season over this seven year stint in the in the top flight. So there's a lot going right on the pitch, but there's still uncertainty as to what is happening. I mean, why has Roy Hodgson not signed? an extra year yet why has that not been announced look it may maybe it will be in the in the weeks ahead but i, I just think at the moment given the, the sense of deflation at what happened in the market this this month and the fact that the manager's future appears to be up in the air to a certain extent has created this sort of air of uncertainty around the club which isn't healthy i think there's a big decision for palace to make in the summer over or between now and the summer and they've been in this position before on the managerial front, whether they stick with the safe option and Hodgson would present that or twist and go for something a little bit more, I don't know, for want of a better word, adventurous, um, dynamic. Um, they tried that with Frank De Boer and it went wrong. Will they do so again? Um, and it's easy to forget that it wasn't long ago that, you know, People were joking that Palace were on course for a Champions League place. You know, it was a really impressive start to the season. Dom points out there that it's their second best points haul at this stage of the season. It's just a very delicate time and it's not helped by the situation involving Hodgson. Big decision coming up for the hierarchy there. Do you think they have a succession plan in place? Do you think they have list A experienced coaches because let's not forget with the exception of De Boer they've always liked the experience of, of a Pulis or a Holloway or a Warnock and then on the other side of the paper do they have the the other list of the young upcoming coaches and if and if they have those two options who who makes the final decision there the Americans Steve Parrish Dougie Friedman I, I think there'll be a, a mixture of all of those I mean the, the hierarchy will be united on this they will know what they want to do um and yeah, you'd like to think that they will have considered all options as to what happens next. One of those options is to give Hodgson another year, let's be honest. I mean, I think when you see them targeting players like Kuame and Ferguson, they are thinking long term in their transfer strategy. They just weren't able to to move that forward in January. And, you know, if Hodgson signs on for another season, then he might be working with younger players in his squad next year. Um, and, and then, that you know, that will give them another 
12 months to to work work on that succession plan but i'd be very surprised if they didn't have a few names sort of you know in the frame potentially now should i mean hodgson might decide to walk away he doesn't have yeah. to he's not obliged to sign a new contract is he so uh, you know they have to, they have to have to have a contingency plan there just in case that happens and just on nathan ferguson because it, it's it's very unlucky if one of your targets fractures his jaw in two places in a game it's very unlucky if one of your targets does their knee in a game is it less unlucky if you leave a move for a player until right at the end of the window and then discover the knee problem? I mean, there will be some who will say, why couldn't they have moved for Nathan Ferguson on the 1st of January? And then this would have come to light sooner. Yeah, and, and there is a, a logic to that argument, but we, we're not privy to how easy those negotiations with West Bromwich Albion were over the course of the month. It may be that... that uh, West Brom weren't amenable to a move until the last week of the window. I mean that that may have been the case. Um, I mean this is a player that, albeit didn't he didn't play from December the 29th because he was injured. He did play last Tuesday night. Um, he played 94 minutes at, at Cardiff City uh, for West Bromwich Albion and got through that game that two one defeat um, and was talking to Palace the very next day. So if, if anyone's taking a risk you'd like to think possibly it was West Bromwich Albion by, by playing mm. a player for 94 minutes at that point when there was a you know, potential for him to, to leave the next day or before the window and he's only got six months left on his contract. It's a, it was a bizarre situation last week and at the end of it all, there are winners and losers, but I'd suggest that the biggest loser is probably Nathan Ferguson because th this poor kid has got a knee problem. He's He's now gone back to his his club his current club to whom he's contracted to um considering what he does with that knee problem now does he does he sort of take the advice that's been offered to him at his prospective new club and have have surgery on it which could keep him out for a long time or does he go with what West Bromwich Albion might be suggesting and and that may be to to nurse it in a different way it's a very difficult situation for a 19 year old to confront and your figures had him on about a thousand a week at West Brom, Palace would have offered him thirty thousand a week. Now West Brom might offer him twenty thousand a week, and and this is a kid that's been essentially caught between two medical departments. Yeah, um, I, I, I suspect at some at some level at West Bromwich Albion there will be questions being asked as to as to why um, it took Slavin Bilic's arrival last summer to realise this is a, this is a fullback. And, and not a centre-half yeah. because previous managers looked at him and considered him a centre-half and weren't convinced he posted the physicality to, th to thrive at that level. Clearly, he, he is a very, very, very good fullback, and he's done fantastically well for Bilic over the course of the season. But yeah, I mean, I, I, it remains to be seen w whether that relationship with West Bromwich Albion can be um, rebuilt. I would suspect he would struggle to do that. Um, there will be a level of of mistrust on on both sides now because um, it's been a, a very difficult week for for him and both clubs. Yeah, it's my understanding that Nathan Ferguson will not be staying at West Brom. He won't be signing a new contract there and he will be leaving in the summer. I think some pretty firm bridges have been built with Crystal Palace, so it's certainly possible that they'll take him as a free agent in the summer and uh, West Brom will only be entitled to a fee that will be decided by a tribunal. Um, of course, it then does become an open market, though, and I think a number of clubs from overseas have already uh, been back in contact to express interest in taking him on. Um, 
the relationship with West Brom is bad, both between the player in the club and the player's representatives in the club. So I cannot see that being repaired. Um, the big decision is what happens over over the injury. So he played with this uh, small knee injury um, on the Tuesday night, as Don points out. That injury was pre-existing, as far as I know. And there's a bit of... Um, disquiet between all parties on why he played after being out on the sidelines for a month that night. Um, He underwent his scan on Wednesday. The results came back on Thursday and that's when it became clear. Crystal Palace tried to restructure the deal. When this sort of thing happens in deadline week, when you're not expecting it, um, I think all sorts of disputes take place about the treatment, the finances. It's just the worst possible time for it to come up. And I agree with you, Mark. It would have been much better if this was sorted out earlier in the window. But that's easier said than done because I think the plan had most likely been until that point that he would leave on a free transfer, most likely overseas in the summer. And uh, then West Brom would have only got FIFA training compensation. So it all developed pretty quickly. Um, And then came the discussions that Crystal Palace thought uh, they would... or only wanted to pay around £4 million, which is pretty much the same as what West Brom will be getting from a tribunal in the summer if he joins another Premier League club. Um, They would, of course, then take care of all the medical concerns, which West Brom will now presumably have to take care of for a player who's going to then leave them in the summer, which will be a financial and a personnel weight on their shoulders. Uh, West Brom were holding out for pretty much the same figure they wanted all along, a guaranteed £8 million. I think they might have dropped down to about 7 million after the um, injury emerged. And that just made absolutely no sense for Crystal Palace. I'm not in the country at the moment. I'm in uh, America and I've been in America since since the end of last week. And that means... Um, yeah, yeah, it's, I'm not complaining by any means whatsoever. And I... Um, but it does mean that you follow you follow transfer deadline day five hours behind actually what's going on and and obviously you I, I you follow it through social media in the main because that's your contact to what's going on back at home so waking up at seven eight a.m. in Miami on Friday morning and checking my phone first thing and seeing Manchester United Manchester United have made a bid for Josh King. Uh, but are still interested in Odion Agarlo, you kind of rub your eyes and think, boy, has jet lag really affected me that much? So talk, <laughs> us, talk us through the move for Josh King and then how they ended up with Odion Agarlo, which, which had been rumoured earlier on in the window. Yeah, well, we knew uh, Marcus Rashford's injury um, sort of spurred United into action on the striker front and and they were always looking for a loan before the window closed. We talked about the likes of um, uh, Edinson Cavani, Christoph Piontek and various others. Um, as it drew to a close, the options were becoming thinner and thinner. And um, on Thursday, Manchester United, to my knowledge, submitted two bids for Josh King. Their preference was always a loan, but when it became clear that Bournemouth would have preferred a permanent deal, um, a couple of offers were made that got up to £25 million from what I'm told, um, but they were rejected by Bournemouth. Um, Some people I've spoken to are suggesting that Bournemouth would have accepted around £30 million. I don't know that for sure. That's just the feeling that I've got from within the game. But Manchester United, as I said, their preference was always a loan. And so that sort of figure for a player who's currently out injured, um, who's 28 years old, um, who 
this was always to be cover for Marcus Rashford. It didn't suit them. Um, there were links there that made this uh, an even more credible story. So Josh King obviously uh, signed for Manchester United as a 16-year-old in 2008 when he came over from Norway. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, his fellow, fellow Norwegian, was a, a reserve team coach at United at the time. There was a relationship in place between Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's agent Jim Solbakken and uh, Josh King. After a number of loan spells, a permanent move to Blackburn, Josh King was then taken to Bournemouth by... Jim Solbakken, and although he then moved on from him to a different agent. And on top of all that, there was a conversation um, around the Bournemouth dressing room. It was well known that after a game between Bournemouth and Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said to Josh King, one day I'm going to bring you to Old Trafford. So that one was credible. And as far as I know, Josh King was uh, really enthusiastic about the move. He was ready on Friday morning to head north if an agreement could be struck between the clubs. Both King and Bournemouth thought that United would come back in with a third offer, but that offer never materialised and King was left frustrated. I think he was pretty aggrieved at Manchester United for not following through with their interest. He had his heart set on it because this is a a once-in-a-career opportunity for him, really. He knows they wouldn't have come in for him, Manchester United, if it hadn't been for the injury to Marcus Rashford. They would never have been in this situation in a summer window. You think they would have? Um, they would have had, you could say, more high-profile options. Um, they would have planned their transfer strategy um, to a point that they probably wouldn't have come in for Josh King. And so ultimately, it was disappointment for him. But he did go to the game on uh, Saturday against Aston Villa. He was in high spirits. He was joking around. He went into the dressing room. I think there was a banter, a bit of banter between himself and some of the players with with um, some of them saying that, you know, they were going to take his car keys and, and prevent him from leaving Bournemouth. He's a popular figure down there. And I think I think he'll get on with stuff stuff and help Bournemouth in their fight against relegation. By which time, Manchester United had wrapped up the perhaps even more surprise signing of Odion Igalo on loan. Odion Igalo might turn out to, to do okay for Manchester United between now and the end of May. He might, you know, might end up with eight or ten goals. Who knows how, how he will fit in. The, the whole point, though, and this, where this might be damaging for the club is what happened on deadline day and has happened throughout most of the January transfer window is it still gives the impression that they're not really quite sure what they're doing. So who was driving the transfer window at United? Well, of course, people put forward Ed Woodward as the figurehead on transfers these days. I think that's something United would dispute um, and say that he kind of signs off the deals and it's more uh, the work of Matt Judge, the sort of chief negotiator, and uh, a number of other people uh, from the scouting department. Look, they admit that Igalo wasn't part of their transfer plans. I don't think Josh King was either, but it's extremely difficult to get a player in, especially in a position like that, with a lot of other clubs looking for strikers as well on deadline day. And so they went outside of their sort of strategy to bring in Igalo. Um, You could look at it and say, look, are Manchester United better off with him on loan and no option to buy than being without him, a goal-scoring option and relatively low cost? Yeah, they probably are. They're not trying to disguise the fact that this was a bit of a a late dash to fill a need and I'm not here to make excuses for them. But I do think the fact that they got somebody in, a body, to give them options 
in that centre forward area is a slightly positive outcome. Uh, just one final thing, uh, more in more on this option to buy clause. We mentioned it when we talked about Jared Bowen and Crystal Palace as well. Uh, are they are they quite? Di- uh, you may not know the answer, but are they quite difficult things to uh, either? put in a contract because it, it strikes me as this would be a very a very sort of and nothing really against United here but a very sort of United transfer situation that after getting all the criticism for Agala for Agala coming in on loan he then does score eight or ten goals and all of a sudden United don't have an option to buy and there and the price goes up. It's <laughs> a very good point um, more and more now I'm hearing about uh, clubs who loan players insisting on an obligation it's why last January Arsenal um, struggled to bring in the likes of Ivan Perisic from Inter Milan uh, and a couple of other deals that they were working on because the club demands that these players are subject to an obligation to buy and that they it's essentially a permanent transfer when it happens at the time. I don't know the, the full situation with um, Igalo and Manchester United. I suspect that if he does well, um, the fee wouldn't be spectacularly different to whether there was an option and you know it would take something extraordinary for United to keep him on I think because they'll have Rashford back and there may have been striking options that they were planning all along for next summer that they'll follow through with and that might well not involve Igalo. And a final thing on the strikers in the transfer window Dom I mean it's not it wasn't just United going for Igalo and Slimani even who'd been injured you know these same players were linked with Tottenham as well, which I suppose shows there was a dearth of options available. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, and clubs out there desperately trying to get rid of fringe players as well, and certainly in Slimani's case. Um, it's a bizarre situation, really, to find elite elite Premier League clubs, you know, the clubs that would, would normally um, be able to fill these, these roles without any problem at all, struggling in the market in this way. But I just, just think it, it showed that, that there was a dearth of quality out there in January. Um, when you when you get all these all these guys in the last six years of their deals, whether they be Cavani's, Mertens, Slimani's, whatever, that, that they're all to a certain extent. Damaged goods is probably a bit harsh, but in, certainly in Merton's case. But there, there's a reason they're on the market, and there's a reason why their parent clubs are, are, are anxious to, to to get them to move on. Um, and uh, and prices just went through the roof on them. It's it's it was a difficult difficult market for even for elite Premier League clubs to to conduct business in. And one other thing about transfer deadline day, you hear so many stories of deals that did or didn't happen, but there are always a few you hear in the days afterwards uh, that never emerged publicly. One I heard was that Emre Chan, who was linked with a whole host of clubs, ended up going to Borussia Dortmund on loan from Juventus with an obligation to buy. The club, I'm told, that got the closest to signing him in terms of Premier League clubs was actually Tottenham. So it could well have been that Emre Chan ended up bolstering Tottenham's midfield, uh, although it's a midfield that didn't look all too bad against Manchester City on Sunday. On to Arsenal and a question from Figgistini. You can send questions throughout the week on social media. We'll pick them up and try and put them in the podcast over the coming weeks. But Figgistini says, what's the level of involvement between Arsenal and super agents, especially Kia Yurabchin, who was spotted alongside Cedric in his signing pictures? Could you shed some light on this topic? Cedric, of course, David, turning turning up... Uh, 
to sign for Arsenal in a leg brace. And that raised some eyebrows from people who saw it, I'm told. However, I don't think that's a particular surprise for someone who's got a medial knee ligament injury and uh, is nursing it back to health in terms of the super agents, so-called. Look, agents, whatever we want to call them, have been heavily influential in many clubs for as long as transfers have existed. And Arsenal, like every other club, worked with agents in the past. They may not have been referred to as super agents, but now Arsenal are doing quite a lot of work with agents who the public know a bit more and don't necessarily have the greatest reputations publicly. And so I think, yeah, there's there's natural concern, you could say. Arsenal are doing business uh, quite heavily with Kia Jurabchian. He is an Arsenal supporter. He's got a tight relationship with Raul Sanlehi, Arsenal's head of football. He, as far as we know, had involvement in the Edu appointment as Arsenal's technical director in the signing of David Luiz on deadline day in the summer from Chelsea and now bringing Cedric to Arsenal from Southampton. And a couple of other agents that they've been doing quite a bit of work with uh, in recent times, one is Arturo Canales, who I think represented or worked with Arsenal to bring in Unai Emery as head coach. And also Andre Curi, who's an agent that Raul Sanlehi knows well from his time at Barcelona. So there are people in the game that are a bit suspicious of these sorts of relationships. What we have seen over the years is that certain agents having a heavy interest at clubs, the likes of Keir Drabchun at QPR, Manchester City, George Mendes at places like Wolves and Valencia has led to some pretty difficult situations, some very bad press. And um, I'm intrigued to see how Arsenal fare because these are the sorts of people that they did not do business with in the past. And under Arsene Wenger, uh, Dick Law, Ivan Gazidis, they kind of veered away from the so-called super agents. And now they're doing work with them. And let's see what happens because many in the game think you have to deal with these people if you want the best players and the best talent. It's a necessary evil or just a, a part of recruitment that um, is unavoidable. So if it works out for Arsenal on the pitch, people will have well, fans will have no complaints. Uh, we haven't got uh, much time left, so let's just do a quick one on, um, with Arsenal about to have their winter break, the assessment really from around the club as to as to where Arteta's Arsenal are at. I only hear good things about Arteta. Um, from a player's perspective, they believe in what he's saying, they understand his words and messages. Uh, from a tactical point of view, from an emotional point of view, I heard that he gave an unbelievable speech before the Manchester United game on, I think, New Year's Day, where Arsenal really performed probably better than in any game under him so far. Speaking to staff around the club, talking about the level of analysis they're doing and the work they're doing on behaviour on and off the pitch. I think um, they've sh they've showed the players a number of videos, um, clips of them... I don't know, from matches where a player has given the ball away or made a mistake and several players throwing their arms up in the air and being sort of uh, disgusted with teammates and um, and they've tried to cut that out and said, look, you need to go into war together. You need to be there for each other, whether it's in good moments or bad, whether there are mistakes, whether there are good passages of play, you stick together and the body language and absolutely everything is important. And I think you've seen that. Um, two of the names that I've heard have stood out uh, being really, really impressive are David Luiz 
from what I hear, he has been absolutely impeccable, uh, an incredible force for good on and off the pitch around the club. Mesut Ozil apparently training fantastically well every single day. Unfortunately for Arsenal at the moment, it's not really translating on the pitch. And I hear from so many people around Arsenal that Arteta has everything in his locker to succeed, that this could be a really special journey. The one caveat being how far the club will back him and how much support they will give him to allow him to fulfil this potential. It'd be fascinating to see in the summer what sort of money they provide him with and how well they invest in this squad because clearly it is a squad in need of investment. Uh, as I've said before, I'm recording this podcast from Miami and I'm going to have to go, otherwise I will miss my flight back to the UK. Although Oliver Kay has written on The Athletics, good article about all the sporting figures that come over here, Gareth Southgate uh, in particular. Uh, and Dom, it feels fairly common out here at the Super Bowl. Now, Gareth Southgate's been the last three years. Uh, Phil Neville's been out for this one. They come as part of a, a leaders in sport uh, party. So there are others with them. Dave Brailsford is often here. Michael Checker, who was the Australian Rugby Union coach, has been out before. They even had one of the, the bosses of Cirque du Soleil uh, with them one year, just to talk about leadership and coaching and various other things. And then they go and uh, visit an, an NFL facility as well and, and talk to all the NFL people who are around for, for their expertise. I mean, Southgate's been a big, big fan of this kind of thing. He got the England Media Day a couple of years ago from from actually being at the Super Bowl in Minneapolis two years ago. Yeah, and I think we'll see another one of those media days ahead of the, the European Championships this, this summer. Yeah, he's, he's very very open-minded, always seeking um, to take advice from from coaches in other sports. Uh, and that's that's taken into the States quite often in the, in the past. I mean, look, I think a lot of Premier League clubs think along the same lines. I remember way back in 2007, I think it was, Mike Ford was appointed as Director of Football Operations at Chelsea. And his job was effectively to, to travel the world and, and, and tap um, other sports and other clubs and, and, you know, completely far removed from Premier League football, but just mm. to try and gain that tiny little edge that, that might be translated back into into top flight football over here in England. And it's 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 very much an open mind from from clubs up and down the, and the league and now from our national manager, just, just whatever advantage you can glean from sitting down with these other, these guys around the world and and pick up little tips here and there. Although if footballers get injured around this time, they do seem to like to come to the Super Bowl. Harry Kane, who's a massive New England Patriots fan, was out here uh, in Atlanta last year when he was injured. Mark? I'm not in bad. It's not look. It's not like getting a yellow card to miss Boxing Day, is it? I, you, I don't think you could deliberately get yourself injured to come to the Super Bowl. Uh, Harry Kane was out here uh, in Atlanta last year. Marcus Rashford uh, was out here. Uh, for this Super Bowl uh, here in Miami. Um, he was on the same flight, actually, down from Manchester to London with me. Although I think once we got to Heathrow, he probably went to a very exclusive lounge and I just uh, moped about looking for a coffee. Anyhow, um, thank you very much uh, to David and to Dom. You can subscribe to The Athletic and read in full all their articles and many, many more from all of our writers. Uh, and by listening to this podcast, you can get a 40% discount on subscription. 40 all you've got to do is go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. All of our podcasts are completely free. If you want an ad-free version, though, then they are available to subscribers. Uh, that's it from all of us. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hold up. 